what you're saying about taking a long time to craft an idea is absolutely true when your project is research driven criticism is really not the same criticism um, kind of involves coming with a supple and open mind an open mind to a work of art or to a kind of cultural phenomenon or an interview or whatever and trusting yourself and trusting your intellectual reflexes you know paired with certain rhetorical skills to react in such a way that you can give something more to your reader that's josephine livingstone the culture staff writer at the new republic and i'll add a recent phd in english at new york university to be more precise i think her work was in european medieval culture I mentioned Joe Livingstone's PhD because that's a major topic of our conversation. Livingstone's writing at the New Republic has the kind of agile, supple thinking and pro style you'd want from a critic who has her thumb on the pulse of culture. But Livingstone blends that style of criticism with the erudition and the specialized knowledge of a scholar. It's a blend that's, I think, really vital and helpful. You can spot it in Livingstone's recent writing on white nationalists, whose attempt to reach back into a kind of imagined and popularized medieval past for a notion of white identity, Livingstone is eager and more than able to critique. Throughout our conversation, Joe and I discussed what it took for her to make the jump from the academy to the world of cultural criticism and magazine writing. We talk a lot about what makes a good academic writer and a good cultural critic. We talk as well about the plight of adjunct faculty, and also the ways in which the distinction between scholarship and cultural criticism seems to be blurring. This was such a fun conversation. Joe is an excellent talker. Um, we do use, I don't know how to put it, I guess we do use adult language. So kids, cover your ears. I don't think there are kids listening though, so it's probably fine. At any rate, I had a lot of fun talking with Joe. Once you're done listening, I imagine you'll check out her writing at the New Republic. Uh, that magazine just published an essay by Joe Livingstone that's quite timely and important. It's called The Task Ahead for Feminism. I'll drop you into the point of our conversation where Joe and I are talking about the difference between academic writing and cultural criticism. You're listening to a podcast brought to you by the Howenstein Center at Grand Valley State University. I'm Joseph Hogan. This is Common Ground. A chief difference between academic writing and um, writing for a wider audience, I think, is that one takes a lot of practice. Writing for a commercial audience takes a lot of practice. Whereas I think that writing up your academic research can, even though it's really, t it's still really tough, um, there are fewer professional standards, to be honest. Mm. Ideally, you're being kind of judged on the strength of uh, a shape of, the conceptual shape of what um, you're communicating and your research, which ideally should be like really fully formed before you write it all down. Mm. Whereas with commercial writing, you almost every time have to begin writing without quite, you know, you've handed in like a little pitch to an editor of maybe 200 words, and then you have to turn it into a piece of writing. Mm. And the argument should really come together as you're writing it, and you should be able to respond to the argument um, respond to current events. You have to be extremely responsive in a way that um, I think with academic writing, you're more kind of um, trying to do justice to an idea. I, my, me and um, my best friend have kind of two competing models for the, the kind of any creative project. And she likes to think that like, when you start writing something or making a work of art, that there's a platonic perfect form of it inside a block of marble and you're hewing, you're like carving away at it. And I like to think of it as like constructing upwards from the ground, like throwing sticks together to build something. They're kind of like two sculptural metaphors. Mm. Um, and much though those two different metaphors speak to the different ways that we conceive of ourselves as writers, I do think that like the hewing a shape from the marble rock <laughs> is, is closer to um, the project of an academic, that there's less space to be like aleatory and experimental. I mean, much though I think as Humanities Academy would like to think of itself as an alleatory and experimental place with room for failure, you're in a way trying to reveal the pl platonic form of your original thought. And I don't think that that is a responsive practice in the way that writing real-time criticism is. So in that sense, did, have you always felt, if you think that your most natural disposition is to write upward or to discover your argument as you produce it on the page, 
Um, have you always felt in a way like a cultural critic and you, and you just were in the academy because it was something <laughs> that it, w- it was the obvious choice to make at the time? It wasn't, it felt obvious. I did my undergraduate degree in England and in England you get much more specialized much more early. So I really took my degree in medieval languages and literature and I was good at it and I really, really liked it. And I had just like, I really loved working on the history of language. I loved getting obsessed with the poetry, the manuscripts. But then when I got to grad school and I really did a PhD so that I could move to America for free. Hmm. I don't know. I wrote some really wild fucking shit. <laughs> like, <laughs> there's a reason why none of my stuff is publishable. Because I wanted to do really like counterintuitive and um, like highly contrasting projects. Maybe that's why I studied medieval and post-colonial um, literatures. Because it would allow you to do wild... I mean, it, it itself as a field of study, surely, if you go to a cocktail party, say, and people ask what your specialty is, they know that perhaps they already know you're doing your doctorate in something in the humanities, so already you're sort of far afield from the mainstream. But, I mean, you also had the added bonus of having to say that you were doing medieval work. What initially drew you then? Was it just the variety of things you could write about? What, into medieval studies? into medieval studies, yeah. I've always been animated by this kind of destructive um, urge to juxtapose things. Okay. So, as soon as I got really interested in theory and um, linguistic theory, especially... I was like, wait, this is going to be fucking cool. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the more and I got interested in um, post-colonial studies, the more I was like, yeah, what I've got to f- like insist on applying this uh, discipline, which is literally historically contingent on modernity to uh, pre-modern materials. Is that, I mean, there's a, is, is that an ahistorical project? I guess it is, it is, um, it's, uh, it would require some intellectual gymnastics on your part, and also some awareness of the fact that the subject itself is somehow counterintuitive. Was was there an initial topic, an initial like interest? Yeah, what, yeah, yeah maps, maps. Maps. Oh, okay. So my dissertation was substantially about medieval map making, and um, I honestly found the easiest way for me to start thinking about them as um, uh, cultural objects was uh, using theories around place and space, which are generally you know, kind of categorized under politics of culture kind of classes, which are often taught by scholars of post-colonial um, mm. thought. Um, you know, thinking about like Lefebvre, those kind of theorists of place and space. And then it kind of, it grew from there. But yeah, you're right. The intellectual gymnastics was literally the whole point. <laughs> it's, it's so fun. But yeah, I mean, someone on my committee um, who I kind of convinced to be on board, and he was he was great, but he was like, You know, my whole career, I've thought of race as being something that was, you know, it was in in the form that we know it invented in this time period, which means that your project is not legitimate. And I was like, "Mm, yeah, but you're on my committee, so you must be unsure. And he's like, "Mm, guess so. Don't tell anyone. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Well, that's very interesting. That actually offers a terrific segue into one of the elements of your writing at the New Republic that I'd like to talk about. So um, as just for listeners who aren't immediately familiar with your work, you're a cultural staff writer at the New Republic and you write about a great deal. Um, so I have in front of me here articles on current television and cinema. I've got your piece on Mindhunter. Um, but then I've also got a piece on Susan Sontag in front of me that you just recently wrote and also some articles on medievalism and its recent misuse and abuse by white supremacists and white nationalists. Um, perhaps we can start on that latter point or issue because you were just gesturing toward it, which is the question of race in the medieval period um, and the way perhaps we can project our own construction, our current constructions of race back onto the medieval period. So you've published articles both in the New Republic and the New Yorker on this strange and troubling tendency of white supremacists to imagine their cultural heritage stretching back to a kind of popularized medieval past, which in fact never existed. Could you talk about this tendency? How did you spot it? And what about it troubles you, fascinates you? What questions do you put to it? I initially spotted it, honestly, when I was um, reading um, a 
about the origins of medieval studies as as we know it in the 19th century. Um, this is something that Carolyn Dinshaw, who's of this department, has written about um, to some extent. Um, she was the chair of my dissertation committee. Um, that there were influential medievalists in the 19th century who were also involved in the colonial project and who would draw kind of comparisons between um, the medieval village and rural villages in South Asia, for example. So that was really the jumping off point. Um, but yeah, as you as you say, writing about race has become one of the kind of like animating ethics of my career now. It's what makes my job feel important. And yeah, I, this has been the case for many, many decades, but the Middle Ages are for many people a kind of imagined space of ethnic homogeneity, a kind of pure originary for whiteness um, in the West. And that there is some kind of um, authentic cultural link between, um, again, the spurious and imagined um, ancient white West, to which there, in, in which the white supremacists can find their authentic self, right? That they can connect to um, a centralized vision of whiteness in a way, because you know whiteness is always having to be renegotiated in America um, around different um, around different poles, but it has. I mean, t it's seen like a huge upswing lately. And I wrote so about Charlottesville um, and the kind of visual language of uh, white supremacists. When you say visual language, do you mean like icons? Um, yeah, like I a, mean like yeah. shields with, firstly the fact of like carrying a shield, right? It's it's a kind of chivalric um, gesture, which again goes is also about coding masculinity, right? Like some vision of the uh, chivalrous man as something under threat from the forces of of the left, carrying shields, some with kind of medieval inflected designs on them. And the that, again, the kind of military stakes of that uh, invokes the Crusades, which was, you know, like an anti-Muslim series of, of wars. Um, that really, you know, was not about Christianity. Um, it was about land grab. So I guess my, my first question about that is, from your scholarly perspective, um, why is that this this tendency to look back, white supremacist tendency to look back into the medieval past for some like pure origin of whiteness. Why is it not just politically wrong, which we is is implicit in it itself, but also we've been describing it. Why is it historically factually wrong? Well, so there's a um, a woman who was with me in the English department as a PhD student called Annie Abrams, and she's written fairly extensively about the term wasp in America, right, the white Anglo-Saxon Protestant. Even in a phrase like that, the category of Anglo-Saxon is, uh, fiction isn't quite the right word, but it's a construction with no real referent in Anglo-Saxon culture itself, right? Or in the, the time period when people spoke Old English and lived in um, pre-conquest Britain. It is entirely coded with the tropes and motifs of the white and Protestant, right? Um, and it's kind of, an, uh, I think she writes that it's an idea that traces the history of those like upper class Protestants in um, New England in a kind of like West to East progression through the Western world. Or like we began here and we came here. So we have come from the deep past to this present moment from kind of like the, sorry, the East to the West. And so, th and this kind of represents like the journey of hmm. like, hyper-modern civilization. None of us can visit <laughs> the Middle Ages. We are always constructing it as a field. Even as we construct it as a field, we are always relying on the conclusions and the, and the research methodologies of the medievalists who came before us, who, you know, going back to the 19th century or even the early 20th century, were sometimes white supremacists themselves who thought that the Crusades were like holy wars, right? Um, there is no pure, real access to the Middle Ages. It's always constructed. Um, it's always an imaginary. And I really think it's the, like, the professional obligation of people with some kind of greater material access <laughs> to what the Middle Ages were like, um, who can testify to its ethnic diversity, to the cultural contact that was um, flourishing in that period, to, tell, to fa feel like medievalists have the authority to say we're right and white supremacists are wrong. 
So uh, uh, talking about this notion of scholars being able to look at medievalism and talk about it or the medieval medieval history or medieval times and talk about it with some authoritative force. I think you can, you have this force in your cultural criticism on the topic. It allows you to make points um, like the following from your August 15th piece in the New Republic, quote, racist medievalism can be not just morally abhorrent, but also deliciously stupid, end quote. You, you cite one medieval scholar as having pointed out that, as you say, certain factions in Charlottesville have appropriated the Black Eagle of the Holy Roman Germanic Empire, which is strongly associated with its patron Saint Saint Maurice, who was black, end quote. Now here you sort of lay bare the absurdity of this white supremacist tendency. It's just sort of laughably confused. But what's really, um, well, one of, the, one of the things that's really too bad about the situation is that it's not as if the points you or any other scholar could make to white nationalists about their historical confusion would make much a difference to white nationalists, it seems, because they're not really, they're resistant to reason and they're also resistant to the sort of argumentation that goes on in the academy, it seems. So I guess I'm wondering what role, if any, you see in your criticism or in the work of academic scholars to undermine or frustrate the efforts of white supremacists who try to reclaim or claim and distort medieval history. I see where you're coming from, and I don't fully agree. Just to note that um, stuff about the heraldry relating to St. Morris, recently a medievalist got in touch to say, well, this isn't exactly right. I think that the sh shield is related to something else. But again, as you say, it's uh, we're all dealing with photocopies of right. simulacra here. Right. So it, it's it, maybe it illustrates not a greater irony, which is real. Yeah. Right, exactly. Um, so I appreciate your point that... Um, the com you know, if we were to imagine a conversation really happening between um, violent white supremacists and um, medievalist academics, that we wouldn't be speaking on the same frequencies on the two-way radio, right? That we would just totally bypass each other. At the same time, there are medievalists um, who are sympathetic to people on the hard right. Um, I don't know if you've read about her, but Professor Rachel Fulton Brown, um, in Chicago's history department. Um, she was quoted in, I mean, she, she runs a blog which is very right-wing in its sympathy. She's a big supporter of Milo Yiannopoulos. She was also um, cited in that BuzzFeed investigation, mm -hmm. which was into the people who were feeding information to, um, to Milo. Sh and, you know, she is really totally willing to uh, instrumentalize her research uh, into something like masculinity and chivalry, right? And say, it's just like, I read some post where she said, when white men invented um, like the concept of chivalry and respect towards women in the whatever century. Like, so, you know, and she's really, people like that are kind of a focal point for the intersection between the, pu you know, the public and um, the research-based ideas of the medieval. At the same time, um, in the piece that you, you mentioned, the New Yorker piece about um, manuscripts, I noted the work of a grad student called Sierra Lamuto, who had, in a recent conference paper, talked about the way that um, so-called Celtic iconography from medieval manuscripts is being very specifically appropriated by white nationalists. I think she quoted uh, some forum poster who said, it's less obvious than a swastika. Right. And, you know, there's a spectrum of thought here, right? So sh she's a grad student presenting. I'm pretty sure she's a grad student. I would hate it if she's a tenured professor and I've somehow sexistly demoted her. Um, there's a spectrum. So she presents at a conference. She then again, pr pr she presented at a, a conference that was held um, in D.C. recently about um, white supremacy in the Middle Ages. I read about it. I'm a, for a former academic and, and a writer. You know, the, the New York is a pretty mainstream publication. Like, there is, I think, a much there's more of a gradient of communications in existence than I think the traditional divide between public and academic suggests, and that that gradient is only becoming more. I think it's only becoming wider, right? It's it's only becoming more inclusive as the kind of roles the traditional career paths and roles for academics break down. Mm, so the initial example you provided for this 
gradient was the collusion between uh, white supremacists and an academic. But do you generally see hope, perhaps, in this gradient? Do you think it's a good thing that there's a greater sense of communication between the academy and the culture? I think it's good for the culture and bad for the academy. Why? Because it sucks for the academy that there are no jobs for talented people, so they're leaving, um, which means that they're... I mean, I think that it means that the standard of teaching is going to erode. I mean, this we're talking about America here, but it's going to erode over the coming decades. Teachers are going to become more overworked, less fulfilled, be producing worse <laughs> research, um, not to be derogatory towards anybody at work today. But I think it's good for the culture because there are ever more highly trained um, people who are ready and willing to talk about to talk about their research, but also to bring academia-honed research skills to public discourse. So I have I have a couple I have a few questions about that. I just want to circle back to one more question I have about um, your writing on medievalism, um, which is that, uh, of course, you received, as I think I've mentioned, you received your PhD at NYU in 2015. Um, your writing on medieval topics that you did then surely is different than your writing on medieval topics that you do now as a cultural critic. Um, you, you mentioned earlier the um, difficulties, the new difficulties that you face as a writer because um, you have new demands on your writing um, by virtue of the fact that you have a wider audience and you have to justify your writing on other terms other than just it's you adding to the scholarship. How do you, I, I, I guess uh, to make the question general, what, what questions do you put to your cultural criticism if it at all relates to your academic work that makes you um, that, that forces you to make it relevant so to speak to a general reader or the bored lawyer who's looking to take it off the shelf there are certain questions that I no longer feel that I have to ask of my own writing and one that has been one change that has been the most liberating is that I no longer have to position my work according to the thought trends animating the discourse in or the the scholarly moment in academia. So, for example, I never have to consider the non-human in the ethics of my writing, right? My dissertation was actually about the kind of uh, co-implication of landscape with racial identity in... Um, Western European poetry that was about South Asia. And in that, I really had to position, you know, what I really cared about was people, right? How did producing um, works of art feed into people's sense of themselves as white and um, in existing in this very, very tense and vibratory self-other dialectic with Indian people? But what I really cared about was the payoff for human beings. And then I could go into my you know, fourth chapter talking about the 19th century and saying, look, I was right. But in writing that, I really had to reckon with, um, you know, with animal studies, uh, with the kind of post-human turn, um, with object-oriented ontology. And that's all like well and good and was excellent for my mind. Um, but every time that <laughs> I'm... Every time that I get to reassert the human stakes of my writing now, I feel like a little thrill. <laughs> That's, th there's an irony there for me because it does seem like if you're working in a specialist discourse, you would have fewer perspectives to worry about. Of course, you'd have to worry about those a great deal because the people reading you who represent those perspectives would put a great deal of pressure on your writing. I mean, I guess, do, do you feel more at home writing for a general audience do you f do you do you worry less about the various perspectives that some random person reading your piece will bring to your essay oh interesting i don't feel any more at home i've always been a very like chill writer um never really worried that much about people hating what i write whether in academia or not however i definitely have a bigger home um outside academia as you said, there weren't that many people who were like into the kind of stuff that I was into, but their opinions were really important. Um, so, you know, all the people doing post-colonial and medieval studies are also interested in the boundary of the human. So I had to be interested in it too. And so really, you know, there were not that many places for my research to go. Mm -hmm. I didn't really try that hard to get anything published, but like... It was never going to happen. You know, I would never be able to write, turn my dissertation into a book 
Um, but I think it's far from everybody and it's very far from a majority of consumers of media in America. But I think there are a ton of people who care about the things that I care about in my criticism. You, s you mentioned that you weren't worried too much about publishing your academic writing. When you were working on your PhD, did you know, or even before, did you know you wanted to become a cultural critic? No. Oh, really? What, no. what, what was the shift? <laughs> so maybe I should run through the kind of stages of my career. Not that I think of it as a career. Um, and then the timeline will make a little more sense. Is that a good idea? Please do. Okay. So I got my undergraduate degree from England. Um, first I went to art school. And then I went to um, university and got an English degree. And then I came straight into a PhD program here. Um, so I was really young. I was like 22 when I started. Um, and I got going and I was, I really, really liked it. I really loved coursework. But when I came to be writing my dissertation, I found I had a lot of spare time. Maybe not a lot of spare time. I know that sounds You're ridiculous. you not supposed to say that, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I felt very, I felt stagnant. You know, I felt very isolated, especially within my tiny discipline. Um, and the idea of honing anything for publication felt like soul-crushingly boring. That would take so long and I would have to iron out all of the character from it and that it just wasn't exciting to me. So really not with like long-term career aspirations, but for fun, I started doing a little bit of reviewing through a friend of mine in the UK who worked at a magazine called Prospect. And then he kind of encouraged me to apply for some internships. And I was like, yeah, why not? I, you know, I really have always been an avid consumer of literary criticism, cultural criticism. So I kind of went along with it and got to, did a couple of internships, one at N plus one and one at Slate on the podcast, actually, mm -hmm. on their culture podcast. Um, the Gab Fest? The Gab Fest, the Culture Gab Fest. Um, uh, one of the presenters of that, actually, Dana Stevens, also has a PhD. Um, right, that's right. And from like Berkeley, I think, or yeah, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, she's uh, like a great inspiration to me. Also, she's so wonderful. Um, so I did a couple of uh, internships. I started freelancing, um, as I think maybe we'll discuss. I wrote for free for kind of a long time, and I also I began volunteering at N Plus One pretty uh, in a fairly long term kind of way. I ended up working there for a job after finishing my PhD, and. The more that I grew that community, it's always been really community-based for me, meeting other women, young women um, book critics. The more writing I did, the more I felt kind of like an outlet on the internet, over Twitter, um, you know, through writing. I felt like I was making valuable human connections, which were starting to... Uh, make my life better and basically this is, this is all when you're working on your doctorate yeah i would say it really got going in like the third and fourth years of my doctorate and then so by the time i finished and i finished in five years because i just really wanted to get it done um and also for visa reasons um by then i was you know, freelancing pretty hard i was really going at it pretty hard um managed to get this job at n plus one um but then i had some kind of wilderness yeah 18 months you know i was adjuncting freelancing working for a tiny non-profit couldn't afford the subway was didn't have health insurance couldn't take prozac anymore got really fucking miserable it was really bad <laughs> really really bad <laughs> so it makes it sound you know i talk about my capital c career like it's all been app all happened on purpose it has not it, that fucking sucked but then Eventually, this job opened up, and I'd done a lot of freelancing for the New Republic. Um, I really loved freelancing for them. And at the time, I was teaching writing, um, expository writing at NYU. And teaching expos is a very venerable stage <laughs> for many, many writers. My editor at um, The New Yorker used to teach um, expository writing himself. And the job opened up. I applied for it. I got it. And now it all seems like it 
was done on purpose. It, it seems planned. Exactly. I mean, it seems like almost faded in a way, in the way you describe it, no except for the wilderness way. year. Well, can we talk about the wilderness year a bit? Just to, yeah, just to totally. dig into it. I mean, did you... My beta fish froze to death <laughs> over what's Christmas. A, what's a beta fish? You don't know what a beta is fish is? Is that a kind is? of fish? Yeah, yeah. It's like one of those frilly fish in the... It froze to death because you didn't have heating? Well, it's actually, I went away and my roommate turned the heating off because we okay. could, the bills were too high. Oh. R.I.P. Oh no. no. Okay, so okay, so in that <laughs> year, in that year um bes- besides that event um I mean were were you thinking then you finished your PhD, you've done your doctorate. You surely know that I mean you were you were somewhat bored with your dissertation. If you're bored with your dissertation then you're never going to like scholarly writing, right? No, I wasn't bored with my dissertation. Oh, you weren't. No, oh. I loved writing my dissertation. Oh, okay. But it didn't fill up all my time. And I knew that no one would want to turn it into a book. Okay. And also I tried very half-heartedly to publish some of the chapters and everyone said no. So, okay. So in this year then, this was, and you were freelancing in writing. I was freelancing and adjuncting. Okay. The experience of adjuncting, um, did that, the, I mean, even if it didn't necessarily turn you out, off to teaching surely it could be a great pleasure to teach i mean just the life of contingency and ambiguity that you would have to <laughs> embrace as an adjunctor would yeah. certainly turn you off to that project yeah i mean i just couldn't do it anymore to give you a sense so in the spring semester of 2016 i would work at um n plus one monday through thursday and on friday i would commute up to the columbia campus where i taught a uh, seminar for seniors about landscape and medieval literature totally my bag it was great got to write my own syllabus um and i was i got to use the office of a very like big tenian professor who was on sabbatical so i got to kind of like taste it you know like looking out over the quad like this really really taste it if you're, when you're exactly. like 16 you've made it exactly but at the same time you know i would leave work at n plus one i would go uptown to tutor 13 year olds i would you know, make it back to bed by like 11, you know, wake up, do, do it again the next day. Um, and then it was just like, I just was constantly on the subway, hauling my ass around. Uh, <laughs> 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 like so cold, so miserable. And I just felt like, I don't know. It just felt like it was never going to end. Did you, when you applied, um, the first place you applied to do become a staff writer, say, was at the New Republic? Yes. Okay, so you got your first application, was a, su- a success? Well, I mean, I applied for loads of other jobs, oh, just not I as see. a staff writer. Okay. Yeah, um, I applied, oh God, I've been rejected from so much shit. I, I applied to be, for some job at the Melville House website, got rejected for that, which I'm so glad that I don't have the job now. I applied f- to edit the all when that job yeah. came up. Again, I'm really glad that Sylvia Killingsworth got that job because she's actually good at it. I would have sucked. I applied for loads of stuff that I didn't get. And then one thing that I did get, and now it seems like I did it on purpose again. Um, do you think that, I guess this is just for those... I also, those, sorry, yeah, just to interrupt. Please. I also applied for postdocs that I didn't get. Right. Well, okay. I, but you want to know something really fucked up? Yes. Because um, I graduated in the middle of the year, the department chair forgot to include me on the email inviting me to apply for the department postdoc. So by the time I found out that applications were going on that had been given to someone else, and I was like, what the fuck? And I'm like, <laughs> sorry, we would have given it to you. Just like, are you oh. serious? Now I don't have health insurance. But that indicates the, I mean, the, the extent to which adjuncts and young professors are are subject to like the arbit the arbitrary whims as well as just the 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 horrible pitfalls and cracks of bureaucracy that for some people aren't point me- meaningless and and affect their lives not at all, but for other people is the difference between having health insurance and not having health insurance. Yeah, seriously, and like. I love NYU, love my degree, love teaching. They don't care. <laughs> they only care about their job placement rates. What do you think? Uh, so you, in many ways, were... Um, you, 
you now are looking out from the other side. You are a staff writer, right? And presumably you have health insurance. I have health insurance. Congratulations. I get very reasonably priced antidepressants. I am great. <laughs> so, okay. So now that you, um, you have some kind of stability, um, surely you must, I mean, I, I don't know. What, what, I'm not saying you must think about it, But, I mean, it probably has struck you on a number of occasions that many adjuncts probably want to do work, the kind of work that you do. Mm -hmm. um, what do you think, this is perhaps an impossible question to answer, but we'll, we can move on from the topic after this one. Um, what do you think is going to happen to the many adjuncts who wouldn't necessarily make it in magazine writing, which is itself a very small job market, and the, the academy, which I think, I really increasingly think it's farcical to call the academic job market a market, because there's a huge demand and absolute, or there's a huge supply and absolutely no demand. Yeah, I think of it as more like a tiny raft or something, or like a very, very high, tiny platform that people are trying to stand on. Amazingly, I just realized that I took that metaphor from a Chaucer poem um, <laughs> called The House of Fame. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, it's not a market. It's not a market. That suggests market forces. Um, you're right, there aren't enough jobs for everybody doing um, magazine writing. There is space for everybody to freelance. You know, Th that is not a way that you're going to be able to make a living for most people. Um, but there is space to write. The freelance market has diversified so much in terms of the people who are coming to the publications. There are not, again, there are not as many publications, certainly not as many publications that can support a freelance Sorry, a full-time freelance career. But if you want to pitch and write and pitch and write, if you want to work up to writing a commercial book, that, pa that path is available to you. At the same time, there are a lot of, you know, the job market for human beings is not the best that it's ever been, but there are so many interesting jobs out there in publishing, in educational nonprofits, in the other jobs in magazines, right? Like, there are so many ways in which to live a life in which you are being productive and contributing to the intellectual culture in which we live while being a writer if you want to you know not everybody has to be a staff writer um and not everybody wants to be i think not everyone wants to churn out four thousand words a week the way that i do I guess one thing I'm wondering is, you know, I mean, many people who finish their PhDs and can't get a job would pro in many ways start to regret that they did all of the work of the PhD. Do you think you could be the critic you are or the critic you're becoming without having gotten a PhD? I wouldn't know as many things, but I would probably know other things. Does that make sense? I didn't nev I never expected that I would be able to have like a beat on the New Yorker website about medievalism and race. You know, that is amazing to me and it only feels amazing because I care so much about um, medievalism and race. At the same time, if I had started, if I had somehow had the money to be able to move to New York and get a visa, which it would never have happened, I would never have been able to afford it. I'd probably be a better writer now if I had started earlier. But I really wanted to get a PhD. Getting a PhD is a beautiful, beautiful thing. You know, it is such a um, wonderful testament to people's care for um, the past, for the world around them. Um, I think every dissertation is a gorgeous thing. And also all of the unfinished PhDs, you know, people who freak out, can't make it, like, just trying is so wonderful. It's so wonderful. And it does not mean the end of your career if you can't get a job in academia or walk into a job at, you know penguin random house the day after you graduate like you have to be prepared to go through a transitional phase and whether that's before or after graduation like either is fine you mentioned um um the diff the the new difficulties of having to churn out writing and the fact that some people um, some academics just wouldn't be interested in doing that at all. I mean, surely many, many academics, perhaps just many writers generally, would say that in order to craft a good argument or even a good piece of writing, um, um, you need to commit time to it. It's time for th thought to gestate um, and to develop um, and to take form slowly on the page. Um, do, you, do you find the 
the constant deadlines helpful to you in your thinking? Does it keep you sharp? Or do you feel you have to become sloppy sometimes? How do you feel about it? I love it. It's always been a really helpful uh, kind of technique for me. I always set my own deadlines. I, you know, never blown a deadline during my PhD. I don't know why. I just, they feel very real to me in life and death. And that's really helped me. Um, and so it works for this kind of writing. I mean... I, what you're saying about taking a long time to craft an idea is absolutely true when your project is research-driven. Um, criticism is really not the same. Criticism um, kind of involves coming with a supple and open mind, an open mind to a work of art um, or to a kind of cultural phenomenon or an interview or whatever and trusting yourself and trusting your intellectual reflexes, you know, paired with certain rhetorical skills to react in such a way that you can give something more to your reader hmm. one thing that it also as, as you were talking i was thinking one thing that it also seems um would be necessary for a critic to have or at least for a critic to have in order to be a really good critic is a point you make about susan sontag i've got to find the article here um right so you write about sontag uh quote that she's authoritative but unexpected and playful she is not quite judgmental, but takes our temperature as though she's a pediatrician and we are the child. I think that's very, that's very hey, interesting. Hey, thanks. I really like that line. I yeah. was like, sometimes she's a pediatrician. Yeah. No, it was a good, <laughs> I thought it was actually a good metaphor for it. I agree. Um, and I'm wondering what, uh, one thing about Sontag is that she had a personality as distinct as her writing. And in fact, the two sort of um, interpenetrated. Yeah, but I also think that there are plenty of male writers with equally big personalities. And don't you think that Sontag's been demonized for her narcissism in the way that like male writers really are? I think that's that's almost certainly true. I just got finished watching a documentary, documentary on HBO that I think was um, presented the opposite argument, which was the regarding mm. Susan Sontag. Have you seen it yet? No. Oh, well, I mean, much of it is about... Well, actually, there's a terrific scene. I've, see, I've seen this clip on YouTube, too, where... Um, Sontag is in the audience, actually, at a lecture um, given by Norman Mailer. And oh, yeah. You've seen this. Yeah, and Mailer yeah, yeah, yeah. apparently introduced, um, who was it, um, Diana Trilling, and said she was the best lady critic of her generation. And Sontag gets up and um, criticizes him for, her, for, for his uh, use of lady as an adjective or a describer on critic. And uh, much of the film was about this, too. I do think that there's a reconsideration of Sontag, and perhaps your article is part of that current reconsideration. Of I hope so. That's the idea. Um, well, but sorry, I distracted you from your original question. Well, what, what, what attracts you to her as a critic? And do you think that um, she is a, a kind of critic that you would like to become or to be, or do you think she's just interesting as a topic and as a cultural phenomenon? I hope that I never become such a windbag and so <laughs> narcissistic, you know, like I don't think I'm a genius. And I also don't think that I deserve the things that Sontag thought that she deserved. Also like she was a genius. Um, I will never, you know, I won't never uh, achieve the kinds of things that she achieved. Um, at the same time, I love her for her wild inconsistency. The fact that she ch she changed her mind about everything all the time. So it's in really, really difficult to cite um, her early work on photography as um, synecdoche for her, all of her work on photography because it just doesn't work that way. So I really I really enjoy her, um, how difficult she is to pin down and that she's not... Um, I feel like she didn't really care when she was wrong. She liked to experiment with being wrong. Um, and that's something that was very attractive to me. Well, well another element um, of her writing is that she was able to, or willing to, or perhaps had the hubris to try to tackle everything. Um, right. I like the, although hubris is morally repugnant, I like the um, its products often. Um, <laughs> you know, it makes me think of the great 18th century. Um, you know, those dudes from the Royal Society who are like, I'm going to write a history of everything about the Roman Empire. Like, I am going to know, you know, everything about, um, I don't know, the living creatures of the world. 
that kind of hubris, with, you know, it's, uh, you know, like Casabon from Middlemarch. It's right. like the classic model. Um, I love that. I think it's adorable. I think it's wonderful <laughs> when pe- human beings think that they can um, exceed the very obvious bounds of their own mortality <laughs> and intellectual restrictions. Um, yeah, I think it's great, especially when women do it. What's the... Uh, th- there's th- Isaiah Berlin had that, uh, who was himself one of these types who tried to, I think, tried to write about everything, or at least write about the big topics, had the, that taxonomy, the, um, the hedgehog and the fox... And the hedgehog yeah. tries to know one big thing, and the fox knows many small things. Mm-hmm. Can't remember which is better or why, <laughs> <laughs> but I think um, I think uh, I think perhaps I mean one of the tasks of the critic, as he or she was conceived, even in the mid twentieth century, was as a person who would try to know everything, um, as you're pointing out. Um, Sontag was this way. So was. Uh, um, I mean, so was even well before her, someone like Matthew Arnold, this like major mm-hmm. cultural critic. Now, do you feel any duty as a, as a writer to try to write about all of the things that come across your desk or all of the things going on in the culture or all of the, be- all of the best novels that are coming out now? Yes, I feel a duty to provide widespread and uh, even-handed coverage to a variety of media. No, I do not think that I am Walter Pater. You know, I don't think that (laughs) I can um, make universalizing judgments, in part because that's not the school of criticism that I think that I work in. It's funny, talking about the 20th century, I think that there are various micro-models for the kind of cosmopolitan critic who feels that they can comment on everything, um, for example, as, as a reader, I'm more interested in the kind of um, lyric tradition, say, in like black criticism. You know, I feel I think that like the v- James Baldwin's voice was much better suited to um, that kind of almost like universal universal touch. Um, I mean, in terms of the feeling of being able to comment on anything while retaining a high degree of uh, kind of vocal specificity. Um, I think it's more effective. I think it will last for longer than Sontag. Um, but at the same time, I mostly think of myself as a workaday critic. I am scrambling to keep up with the important, the things that I think are important that are happening. Like right now, I'm very tired because I went to a screening of I, Tonya, the ice skating movie way fucking uptown that only finished at like 10.40. And ironically, I twisted my ankle as I was walking out of the cinema. Finished at 10.40? Yeah, yeah. In the morning? At night, at night. At night, I'm at sorry, night. okay. No, although I often go to screenings you at 8 a.m., oh yeah. Um, so yeah, I'm, if I feel like I'm just kind of running around trying to do justice to the amazing work that people produce. Um, but that is not the same thing as feeling like I'm a universal critic. I'm very partial, and I also, I think, uh, you know, I write for a political magazine. I think that I am probably a little more uh, committed to, like, political commentary in my culture writing than many culture critics who are culture critics out there. So I totally have an agenda, you know. I'm not, and, you know, I'm not neutral. I'm not a... um, I'm not like the ideal form of a critical voice in the void. I'm, I, one, one thing I, I wonder a lot about the critical voice um, <laughs> today <laughs> is that it's so, I mean, uh, another thing that was different about even the mid-20th century is that there were a few um, clearinghouses in magazines um, and the difficulty to even get into some of those magazines, to have your voice heard, so to speak, was very high. Now, of course, you have even a number of academics um, taking to Facebook, taking to Twitter. And there are many places you can get immediate criticism of the most recent show, say, and have it be informed by a great deal. You, you, I, mean, I mean, people with PhDs in cinema studies will be coming out with essays immediately, Facebook essays immediately on the most recent film. Uh, what, what Not that they're better than the average, like, you know, there are people who only write on Rotten Tomatoes who don't have cinema studies PhDs who are great critics. Well, th- I guess that's 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 the question then is what what do you um with this 
with a great many, the, the orchestra of discordant voices um, in the, uh, in the, it's a somewhat mixed metaphor, in the conversation. No, you could totally have good. a discordant discor- or- orchestra could, of suppose, voices, especially totally. Especially postmodern, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, what, what do you, what would you like to define your voice and make it distinct? And um, what would you like to be able to say that perhaps you think no one else can say? Gosh. It's funny. I was just uh, praising inconsistency as a virtue. But for myself, I kind of pride myself on being reliable and consistent. Uh, You know, I talk a lot about having like a political ethic that spreads across a lot of my um, writing. I write about race a lot and gender a lot and sexuality a lot. But while writing about a wide variety of topics, I like to, um, yeah, I like to think that I am, I represent a place to which you can return for a kind of um, consistency of approach, which means that you will probably be able to more easily compare, say, two movies that I've written about, right? Because if I reviewed this one movie and then you went to see it and you agreed or disagree, you know, you're probably going to agree or disagree in the same way next time. And, you know, I really think it's like it's a service to the consumers of art, mainly, I think, what I do. Like, it's not a platform for me to develop my grand thoughts, right? It's a service. Um, so, yeah, and I, I think that there's very little consistency out there, um, especially as the, the stable of staff writers has probably you know diminished over recent years the publications have become fewer the voices have often become loftier um there have been some really fabulous hires in um recent months and years and i was thinking of gia tolentino and doreen st felix at the new yorker that but they're both very uh voicey and very consistent writers um and i think that that's something I mean, I don't know if that's rare as opposed to someone who writes updates their blog regularly, but it's something. It's something that is not everywhere. That was Josephine Livingstone. Common Ground is a podcast brought to you by the Howenstein Center at Grand Valley State University. The director of the Howenstein Center and producer of this podcast is Gleaves Whitney. Kadar Jabbar and I edit the podcast, and Andrew Whitney composed our theme music. The Howenstein Center is inspired by Ralph W. Howenstein's Life of Leadership and Service. Our programs address many of the most pressing issues in American life. Our annual Progressive Conservative Conference challenges leading thinkers on the left and the right to explore the possibility of common ground and to redefine their respective traditions. Our annual conference on the Midwest brings together academics and journalists to discuss the cultural and political significance of the region that's often called flyover country. To learn more about our programs, visit howensteincenter.org. Follow Howenstein GVSU on Facebook and Twitter. You can also follow me on Twitter at Joe Hogan CGI. Thanks for listening. I'm Joseph Hogan. This has been Common Ground.